The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Anthony Curry, and with me here is my co-host, Jennifer Saber. Hi, Jen. Hi. So later in the show, we'll attempt to get to the bottom of what Facebook's new cryptocurrency is all about. First, though, we make way for our colleagues in Asia to explain how talking pork has left Swiss investment bank UBS being roasted on the proverbial spit. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm here in Hong Kong. I'm talking with Alec McFarlane about the recent kerfuffle in China over comments made by UBS wealth management economist. He was talking in a podcast about pork prices. Um, He made a comment that was misconstrued or correctly construed, depending on which side of this debate you take, about Chinese pigs. Um, The analyst community in China got up in arms a bit. It went viral on Chinese social media. Um, Now he's in hot water. UBS is trying to figure out how to manage the situation. Alec, how did we get here? Yeah, so uh, Paul Donovan is a very outspoken senior economist in UBS's wealth management division. He has this regular podcast. He has a very plain speaking style that perhaps is is, uh, easy to misconstrue. And that seems to be the case. What was the comment? What did he say? Well, basically, he was talking about the the rise in pork prices and and the rise in uh, food inflation, exactly in relation to this this devastating swine flu epidemic that's that's been uh, going through China. And uh, his his exact line was um, Chinese consumer prices rose. This was mainly due to sick pigs. Does this matter? It matters if you are a Chinese pig. And the two words together, Chinese pig, were quite sort of ungenerously translated and uh, misconstrued by uh, quite a, a, a serious chunk of, uh, of, of, of China, it seems. Now, there's two things going on here. One is that UBS Wealth Management Division, this isn't the first time they've kind of misspoke. They had one guy go on television and mixed up some economic terms, which is embarrassing. This is yet another blow. Um, what does this mean for UBS's business? Yeah, it's perhaps a little bit unfair to, to reference that. I mean that that was a uh, that was a guy that went on television. This is quite this is quite an unfortunate incident in that. Uh, he, well, in that case, he genuinely mixed up the terms. Right? Exactly. Well, in, the, in this case, arguably, it's well. This actually this shouldn't have slipped through the net quite so easily. In that you know this was on a podcast. It was then put into a note, which was then put out. So I mean there were there were multiple instances for UBS to notice this, and they. But didn't. is there any? native English speaker who would read this in context and conclude that Paul Donovan was calling Chinese people pigs. It seems that most English uh, language speaking people see it as a, as, as a comment that's been misconstrued. It doesn't seem to be the case in, in China. That's the problem. Well, I mean, I guess the question is with, with media strategy, because, I mean, there's there's a whole industry in social media outrage and cert- not, not only in China, right, where people go and kind of hunt for things because, and the reason you do it is because it's a great way to get a high profile. You know, you, uh, that's racist. That's insulting people, you know, and you go and, and like in China that that there's lots of people who have piled onto this um, in other cases. Of, oh, these foreigners are taking advantage of us or this guy is bigoted or whatever. And there's no downside um, for them. And domestically, they get, you know, they get applause. And ordinarily, the foreign foreign companies will back down whether they think it's valid or not. I mean, what's interesting in this case, you had all this pressure on Chinese airlines, right? Um, Oh, sorry, foreign airlines by the Chinese government, because, you know, when you're buying a plane ticket, it would list Taiwan and Hong Kong in the country tab. You know, that forced this whole pull down. But in this case, it seems like a little bit more extreme. I mean, to what extent do you think this is from the Chinese government? Is it just like 
one guy on on Twitter and Chinese social media going nuts. Well, that's the thing about this. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's 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 very different. That these these cases usually are, are sort of quite political. You had uh, Gap apologising for uh, for removing Taiwan and Tibet from from a map on its T-shirt. You had Refinitive Reuters, Reuters partner blocking coverage of the the Tiananmen massacre, the 30th anniversary. But this uh, just within the terminal, to be clear. Not, yeah, yeah, just within. You can the still find this content on, on Reuters.com. <laughs> um, but yeah. but th- this is different. I mean, this is this is kind of like a this is sort of like corporate groveling in response to to a lot of rivals as well. You know, Haitong International has severed ties, and, and the president. Yeah, they've lost some uh, bond deals, right? Uh, they, yeah, they've lost a bond deal. But I mean, th- there does seem to be. Uh, an element of rivals pouncing. You know, let's not forget that Haitung International is an aggressive competitor to UBS in everything from equity capital markets and debt capital market issuance to you know wealth management. And it's notable that UBS has just taken a 51% controlling stake in its China JV, at, at which point the, the competition with, with companies like Haitung will, will increase dramatically. Well, so where does it stop? I mean, so obviously, you know, some of the people who led the charge on this have now been rewarded in China and they're seeing UBS, you know, back off, uh, you know, put Paul Donovan on leave, I believe. Lord knows what they'll, they'll do with him eventually. But, you know, if you're, if you're sitting on the sidelines watching this, I mean, you got to be asking yourself, like, what, what do we do to avoid this? You know, how would you have rephrased this as opposed to not publishing the note at all or whatever? I mean, it, it does seem that the, the vetting needs to increase, like, significantly. And there is a but difference But isn't it safest here? just not to write about China? I mean, like, Beijing is pressuring, like, local economists, mm-hmm. right? Local bro- already, you know, there's this push domestically, you know, to say happy things about the Chinese economy, say like there's there's been this kind of political correctness inside China as well, um, albeit not not quite with this tone. And now there's this pressure being leaned on of like, we really don't write like you guys writing bad notes about, I mean, keeping in mind the consumer price inflation, the, the swine flu is a real problem, you know, that Beijing hasn't gotten in control of. You know, so isn't the risk that you you just decide to not cover it, like not put this stuff out and, right, and leave really, everybody less informed? That's a really dangerous slope, right? Because you're going to have you know an incredibly inefficient market where people are you know you know talking heads, important talking heads like Paul Donovan, can't address important issues like this. There's a distinction here, right? You've got uh, UBS's uh, investment bank research department and UBS's wealth management department, which is what Paul Donovan sits in, are two very separate entities. Where the investment bank research department has this huge infrastructure. Um, a lot of the, the, the speakers are very experienced. You can bet that the vetting process in that department is a lot more stringent than it is in wealth management. So what really needs to happen is UBS and, and companies watching this debacle really need to kind of strengthen, strengthen up and beef up in every every unit, and especially you know ones that speak to the media on a, on a regular basis. Well, I mean, given the difficulty that foreigners have in understanding the Chinese economy and its companies and its markets and how they work, I don't see how investors benefit from companies standing on their heads to play it safe with cultural sensitivity sensors going through all their, their research notes. But that does seem like the trend. Alec, thanks for talking to me. Facebook is launching a cryptocurrency called Libra, And it is absolutely baffling why Mark Zuckerberg would wade into this area, given all the problems he's had over the past couple of years, particularly around privacy. So here to talk this through with us is Tom Berkeley. Tom, this is a company that is just plagued with tons of problems, including privacy issues. Why would Mark Zuckerberg want to start getting into cryptocurrency? Well, Jen, I understand your bafflement. I mean, the the quick response from all the wags are, yeah, we don't trust them with our data. Now we're going to give them our money. Uh, so there's there's that hurdle to get over. 
Um, there's also the issue of a lot of what they're trying to do is done by other companies like Venmo, like WeChat in China, with no blockchain or crypto at all. It's just, uh, you know, nice easy fintech, payments. easy payments. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he's got a he's got a drive here. So they're dominant in advertising, but they're they're under some pressure, you know, regulatory wise. Um, they've always wanted to get more into payments business because, you know, if you let people talk and communicate across borders, why not let, why not let people send money? Um, payments only generates 1% of their revenue now. It's, mm -hmm. it's not, it's barely even a rounding error. Um, and so, you know, why not do it? And the sort of the blockchain crypto thing, is it real? Is it a gloss? Um, you know, lots of mainstream institutions are into this space. Some of it's defensive. We don't know if it's going to disrupt the business. Some of it is gloss to, you know, give a, a high-tech buzz to it. And, you know, some of it is real. Blockchain can be useful in terms of, you know, smart contracts and things. And it, so there, there, there are reasons to do it. But it, it's pretty audacious for someone in Mark Zuckerberg's position to go on the offense, as you, it were. You, so, okay, let's let's back up here because I... This subject hurts my head. I don't understand it, and I don't. So, why don't you just kind of just lay out exactly what the offering is? Like, what what is this, and how does this work, or how do they think it's going to work? So, there is going to be an association. It's going to be based in Switzerland because the regulation is relatively favorable there towards crypto ventures and blockchain. That will manage a network to a blockchain, a distributed ledger technology that will allow people and companies to move money around. So companies like MasterCard and Visa are part of this um, cryptocurrency and, and put their money behind it. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's not big amounts for them. Yeah, all the initial members pony up $10 million, to, which in theory will get this the network up and running, will provide some of the seed money to provide incentive payments to get merchants in on the deal. Um, so it's, you know, that that's helpful. So what I don't get about this, because so, you, you mentioned already other players doing this, and you know I'll add you know a couple, couple like Venmo. Obviously, you've got the banks in America have finally managed to pull their fingers out, and you can now transfer money between most of them immediately. A lot of European banks have been doing this for years. Apple's now got it on their phone as well. Facebook even lets you send money over the Messenger uh, app. I see more of that's domestic. So, um, but, but I still don't understand what it is they're really trying to solve this because. Aside from settlement risk, i.e., you know, the, the bank regulators won't allow too much to be done within seconds, um, and certainly internationally, maybe that's an issue. I don't really get what blockchain is meant to be solving here. Well, to me, the, the first and most obvious use case that, that, has, that, that seems logical is to help people, individuals, move money around. Um, so there are somewhat over 1.5 billion people who use WhatsApp to send messages around. And they're all around the world. There are 200 million in India alone. Now, there's a lot of money that gets transferred between friends and family across borders. There's a huge remittance market. It's estimated at over $500 billion a year by the World Bank. It's everything from Central American migrants in the U.S. sending money back home. It happens from South Asia all around the world. Um, that, that's big, chunky money. And, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is saying, all these people are using WhatsApp to communicate to families. What if you gave them a way to sit there at the same time on the app, to sit there and press a button and say, here's $100, 100 euros, um, you know, 1,000 pesos, what have you. Um, and that could be attractive. 
So you're saying it's, it, it seems essentially that it's a, a, an international or a cross-border market, should I say. So it's not really trying to take over what, you know, Chase and Wells Fargo are doing here or Lloyd's or Deutsche Bank are doing in Europe. Now, we're not the target market, certainly not in the first iteration, not even that I can see, you know, for some years down the line, even if this takes off. But, yeah, um, you know, developed countries, cross-border stuff. You know, WeChat's dominant in China, but it's nowhere else. Yeah. Um, so this is a way to... to to sort of try to get into new markets that way. End of the day, though, um, let, let's assume you know. Let's just say, for example, that you know you're my you're my son back in um, I don't know, let's say Peru, and I'm sending you some money from the US, and I use this. Each of us will still have to have some kind of bank account to be able to access that money. End of the day, right? Unless we can go and directly spend it, I suppose, with merchants. Um, there will. They say there will be opportunities for people to go in and just pay local cash to. I, I don't know what's going to be some kind of a Western Union office or, or, or a bank, but there'll be a way to get money in there that doesn't necessarily require a bank. And, you know, part of their initial test, the, the initial target market is really the under or unbanked to actually give them a way to transfer money. And that could be useful. And then you figure if, you know, the, in the in the rosy scenario, they say, OK, so I've sent, you know, $100 to my son off in a university in, uh, you know, in Spain or Morocco. Uh, and it's in this coin Libra, you know, if if Uber in Morocco or every merchant who accepts Visa and MasterCard, which is an awful lot of merchants, will take Libra, I mean, he can spend it. It doesn't need a bank. So potentially there is commerce potential to build on that. Right. And but so the appeal is going to be A, those who are unbanked, but B, I suppose also if it's in if it's cross border, it's going to be lower fees. But those have been coming down a fair bit already, right? So it's not as if there's necessarily an e- the easiest way to undercut some of the fees. Exactly. And they, not surprisingly, have overhyped this. They talk about low to no cost. Well, I mean, not really. There's the, you know, the opportunity cost. So a lot of the partners are going to, they're hoping to make money by the float. So you put your money into the system before you spend it. They invest it in, you know, government bonds, what have you. Uh, they get the interest. Uh, and for most, I think, providers, the digital wallet, that's the device on your phone that actually is going to store Libra. Uh, that's a common feature in cryptocurrencies because there's no bank involved. Um, most, please, uh, you know, most wallet providers charge a fee for that. So, Tom, Facebook is already in payments. It's it's a tiny, tiny slice of it, as you mentioned earlier. They've always sort of had a hard time getting traction into this area. You know, what are the risks involved with um, Libra? Well, there are a lot. First of all, a regulation. Uh, they have talked in very broad, fuzzy terms about working with regulators to resolve any issues. But frankly, they're going to need to, um, they're going to need to address a lot of concerns about everything from, you know, know your customer and anti-money laundering to um, the actual managing of the, re- the reserve that's going to supposedly back up the coin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the first thing you heard um, within hours of the announcement come out, you had Sherrod Brown, you had Maxine Waters come out and saying, uh, very you know, potentially critical things, and we're going to demand to know with Facebook how they're going to do this, and is Just it safe? Maxine Waters, the, she's the, the Democrat uh, who's in charge of the U.S. House the Banking, House Banking Committee. Committee. Yes, so not not a not a bit player. Yeah, um, and we also heard comments from uh, I think Mark Carney, the Bank of England governor, similarly saying we're going to want to take a look at this. Uh, so they've got the regulatory issue to to, to deal with. Um, there is the you know, the broader market perception. I think if this is looked at as Libra and new and the partners, that helps. If this is discussed as Facebook's coin, 
I think that brings potentially a lot of reputational baggage along with it. I'd say actually I'd have one more risk, which is simply that even if you accept everything else gets sorted out, um, and this shows my skepticism, you still need people to want to use it versus something else. So will there be an uptake? Like you were saying, Jen, the, the previous or Facebook's regular so-called payments product has got very little traction. Yeah. And I think they're counting on a wow factor, and it's not clear to me that that's there. Um, but, you know, they've surrounded themselves with some partners. They say they want, uh, you know, 100 by, the, you know, uh, within a year or two. And if they get a lot of mainstream institutions, um, it's possible that this does gain some kind of momentum and they have a stake in making it succeed and have the wherewithal to actually pay incentives to both uh, Libra holders and, uh, and merchants. Um, but it remains to be seen. And again, the, the one thing I haven't mentioned, you know, Libra, is, it's a basket. It's not a dollar or a euro. And most people, they actually, you know, they know their own currency. And the idea of, of switching it for a basket, which is not, not quite clear. Yeah, and yes, they're going to give you a conversion on your cell phone screen. So you're going to see exactly how many dollars your Libra are worth. But it seems like, you know, an unnecessary level of complexity that might turn um, the average user off. All right. Well, we'll leave it at that. Uh, Thanks, Tom, for coming on to explain the cryptocurrency. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Alec McFarlane, Pete Sweeney, and, of course, Tom Berkeley for coming on the show. And we owe, as ever, a debt of gratitude to our producers, Freddie Joyner and Andrew D'Antonio. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister show, The Exchange, on iTunes or wherever you snag your podcasts from. And please do share your opinions about our show. Join us again next week for another edition.